let's start with the third chapter of Second Nephi, <coughs> just to show we're rushing along here. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's a genealogical chapter, and it has strange phenomena in it, which occur in genealogy all the time. If you've done any work in genealogy, you know that certain names have a way of, of popping up all along, and certain relationships turn up where you don't expect them at all. Now, he notice in the first verse he compares Joseph as a lost child, the last born in the wilderness. Well, Joseph was the lost child, remember? He was sold by his brethren into Egypt and dropped down a well and picked up by a caravan and taken into Egypt. His brethren were all down on him, and uh, <coughs> but he has a home. May the Lord consecrate unto thee this land, he says in the second verse. So he'll have a place to go. Joseph did then. Joseph, my last born, who was brought out of the wilderness of mine afflictions, may the Lord bless thee forever. Thy seed shall not utterly be destroyed. Always the survival of Nephites in the New World also. And then it, we have something of a survey here. He says, I'm a descendant of Joseph. Now it's this name Joseph that they play on. But this is a characteristic thing in <coughs> genealogy, I say. And of course, Joseph is very special. But the fact that it should be the same Joseph leading right down to Joseph Smith should not surprise you. You've already, we used to require everybody to read, first year college, everybody read, uh, everybody read uh, Henry Adams, Mont-Saint Michel, Michel and Chartres, in which he shows how in the 12th century, time William the Conqueror, well, 1066, we make it the 11th century, everybody in Europe was related, and they were. We had to be with the three million people living in France and England, uh, within a few generations, they would all be intermarried, and, and this is the way it actually turns out. And so we have something like the Assizes of Jerusalem, that amazing document. You see, when Jerusalem was taken the First Crusade, 1095, they, <coughs> they set up the Kingdom of Jerusalem there. First it was uh, Geoffrey, it was uh, Geoffrey Bion, who was the Duke of Lorraine. And he died in 1100, and then his brother became Baldwin the first, became the first king of Jerusalem. And we had the line of, of Baldwins and so forth. But the people you have at Jerusalem represent all the royal families of Europe. And you have there in that crusade was uh, was Robert, who was the son Robert of Normandy, who was the son of William William the Conqueror, to whom you're all related if you've done any genealogy. All I have to do, you see, is just get one name in nobility, and then you're related to all of them. And of course, everybody likes it. That saves you a lot of work, you see. So you, all you have to do is get one name, and then you go down the line as if there was nobody but nobility living in Europe. But they are all related, and, and, the, and this is what happens with the size of Jerusalem. Anyone who gets to be king of Jerusalem was king of all the world because he could relate himself to every royal family in the world, as far as that goes. And it's very easy, easy to hook up on that. Uh, I know my wife's genealogy has scads and scads of, uh, of uh, it was uh, nobility around the Baltic. Uh, it was Estonian and Polish, and uh, once you get into that, you're into everything else. But she's, she's from the line of the Reverend Leighton. And this we can trace back. I mean, Joseph Smith's from that line, Brigham Young's from that line, Heber C. Kimball's from that line, George Washington's from that line. They all come down. Everybody is related. All, the, all of colonial America's related. Well, they came from one part of England originally, certain parts of them. And they were very much intermarried and so forth. And so you have this bedizzening network of relationships, just a mesh that go together. That's a fascinating thing that happens here. And uh, so we have in the, uh, oh well, and then there was Raymond of Toulouse, who was the son of Philip I of France. The interesting thing is <coughs> that all these people have very strange relationships with Jerusalem before. You may notice, note that book that's caused such a sensation in Europe called Holy Grail, Holy Blood, and uh, the Holy Grail being their genealogies. And all these families are related, and, but you notice Toulouse, that was, that was never Roman Catholic at all. Toulouse was the, was the hotbed of the Baptists and so forth, and uh, Raymond of Toulouse, and then we have, uh, along with them, uh, we have the, uh, the Sicilian family, of course, I remember Robert of Normandy also, also, also ruled in, in, in Sicily and the like. And, and so you get this Holy Grail stuff. But the, the Assizes of Jerusalem uh, are supposed to be the, the constitution for the ruling of the world from Jerusalem. But the court and the kingdom would be there. So they set it up there. And uh, the most magnificent pageantry you can imagine. It was all show, but what a show. I mean, this is the, the Middle Ages at its peak. 
I mean, the pageantry, the, the processions, the, the gaudiness, the decorations, thing, and all based around the temples. See, the Templars, uh, the Knights Templar, and the Hospitallers. They were the Hospitallers that gave hospitality to people coming to the temple, all mystically associated with the temple somehow or other. It's really something. Well, we won't get into that. I'm just showing you that this short chapter here, was well, not so short, on genealogy, it might not be so cockeyed as it looks, but the way these, uh, these things keep coming out. Now here, for example, and the spanning of time is a fascinating thing. I was just thinking here, uh, I have two uh, various grandchildren, of which I'm excessively fond of the last two, uh, three and a half and uh, two and a half and three years old, are, are terribly smart. Now I, I'd like to go with these, uh, with these little nippers and walk along the canal and so forth. They see everything, they talk about everything, they know everything and so forth, that's wonderful. And so you cuddle them and you kiss them and all this sort of thing, and that's nice. Now, I was treated the same way by my grandfather, great-grandfather, John Patrick Reed. And uh, he was born in 1825. And these children will probably be living, I figure, in uh, 2078 at least, if they live as long as I do. So here I am, intimately associating with people living over a span of 253 years. That's what our lifespans cover. It's not, I mean, knowing them intimately. I've known intimately people 253 years apart. So you can jump over times in a very short, in a very short period, and you'll find yourself related to all the crusaders and everything else. It's an amazing thing, this family business. But it isn't as exclusive and as snobbish as you think it is, you see, because nobody can be snobbish. We all have crooks in our family and everything else. And uh, <coughs> uh, very interesting things turn up that you never expect. Now, We'd given up on the name Nibley, which turns up in odd places and times until just re very recently. Uh, my, uh, my cousin Preston uh, got doing some serious work back in Scotland, and a very favorite place of mine. For some reason, I always felt fascinated by the name Elphinstone. It was the first place where the Norse landed when they came to Scotland, northern Scotland. Uh, the whole lowlands of Scotland, you see, are, uh, are Scandinavian. And uh, from way back, and uh, here, there's this town of Elfins, the Stone of the Elves. That sounds rather romantic, you know, they landed there. But it just turns out that there were three mayors of Elfinstone in succession, all called Hugh Nibley, you see. I'd never seen my name anywhere before at all. Something's going on here. It gives you goose flesh, you see. So when he talks about this Joseph business, you may well, well take it seriously. He talks about another Joseph and so forth, and it goes on down the line. And, uh, no, and the important thing, notice, a great deal is said in this chapter about records about written records about a written connection and that's all you have you notice here wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write and what is written shall be, by the fruit of thy loins shall grow together to the confounding of false doctrines so forth in the latter days so it's turning out and uh, a great deal said notice but I will write unto him my law with my finger he says about Moses you say God says, I will write unto him my law by the finger of mine own hand, and I will make a spokesman for him. The primacy of writing is very interesting, but what do you find? Uh, some of you may have seen that the most recent geographic, I think it is, on the prehistoric men and so forth, tracing them back. But there's something, not much in that, but uh, the fact is that you will find, you see, uh, <coughs> writing is the oldest thing. Men the written document, handing round the visible written document you find there. The written record is to be, you will hand, find these hand marks on caves, for example, which are individual marks of possession. The person member put their hands on the caves and then they, then they spray it with paint by blowing it from their mouths. And you find the same thing in, uh, in China and you find the same thing in Spain and you find say, the same thing, same thing in the caves of Austria uh, and, and Australia, I should say, not Austria, but Australia. Uh, they do the same things on the walls there. Uh, back to the most primitive times, their marks, are, but aside from that, they put marks. They're definite symbols and marks. That's, that's the wasm of the Arabs. The, the wasm, you put your mark on something. Put your mark, it's your name, it's your identity, and it identifies with a cave or piece of property, especially with an arrow. I, the first long anthropological article I published was on the arrow, the, the hunting in the state, and it's on the marking of arrows as a prehistoric way of establishing your identity to what you, whatever you shot to the lands and everything else. That's the crest you have in Scotland. I mean, your crest is the mark, is the pattern of colors, threads on your arrow, so that you can identify it. Wherever you go, it identifies you, and it's the crest of your house, and you weave it 
opposite directions in your plaid, and you wear it as a plaid, and it identifies your house. So they call it the crest. It's the mark. It's your identification. But this writing and marking of things, the oldest thing we have here, uh, it's very necessary. It establishes identity, and it establishes control. And so when we're talking about identity here and genealogy and passing over thousands of years, that is the written record. It is very important to do. Notice again in the 18th verse that he shall write the writing of the fruit of thy loins, and it's as, as if it was coming from the dust. And of course, the value of the Dead Sea Scrolls records is that they are written documents. And the minute they were dug up, these kids in the in this caves there and the Nahalcaver, they could read them just like that, though they were thousands years old, uh, two thousand years old at least. <coughs> and so they cry from the dust in repentance. And therefore, thy seed shall not be destroyed. This has to do, see, with the bridging of time and space and also of humanity. Uh, as uh, Brother Packer would talk about it last night, you see, uh, we are the human family, and that is something unique. And we do come from, from, one, from one ancestor, from one, from, from one common source. Well, that's the thing that's coming back to me. Biologists are bringing that back a lot. I don't mean about Adam, but the necessity, a thing they'd given up long ago, that we had multiple origins. There must have been multiple origins have been dropped now, it seems, by most biologists, that it just does come from one, one ancestor as far as that goes. Well, that's another thing. But what we're dealing here is the big picture. We get a scope and a span, a sweep here, that is quite remarkable. So then we have Lehi, of course, summing up with a patriarchal blessing. He blesses his sons, daughters, as we see. He uh, spoke concerning Joseph, uh, concerning the <coughs> Joseph prophesied concerning thy seed and concerning us and future generations. Now notice in the third verse, we're on the fourth chapter now, we're rushing along. He calls the children of Laman. He doesn't call Laman. He doesn't bless Laman and Lemuel. He doesn't give them blessing. He blesses their children, because it's their children who survive, and it's their, their children who are blessed. And he says, uh, he calls him my firstborn. Behold, my sons and daughters who are the sons and daughters of my firstborn. But it's not the firstborn he's blessing, you'll notice. I would say it's, uh, <coughs> it's the way Isaac crossed his hands when he blessed Jacob and Esau. He, uh, he, he reversed the blessing on Esau. He wouldn't give it to him. And the same thing with the blessing on Manasseh in the, uh, in the, in the Isaiah, the, uh, the ascension of Isaiah text, a very old text discovered. I should leave a blessing with you. He's not going to leave them without a blessing. Therefore, if you are cursed, behold, I leave my blessing upon you. Because of my blessing, the Lord God will be merciful unto you and your seed forever. And then the layman, he caused the sons and daughters of Lemuel to be brought before him and gave him the same blessing. My second son, I've given you the same blessing as the other. And then the sons of Ishmael the same, and then he blesses Sam. Uh, Thou shalt be like thy brother, who's going to be, who's always been Nephi's strongest support here. And so then we get to uh, after well he died, and after his death, Laman and Lemuel and his sons. Oh, the old feud bursts out anew, worse than ever. You notice in the thirteenth verse, were angry with me after his death. They've been holding off because, out of respect for their father, probably. Now he says, upon these things I write the, song, the, the things of my soul. And here we get a very interesting character analysis of Nephi. He really, he really pours it on here and shows the, an interesting and conflicting, we'd say a complex and difficult character, is Nephi. He writes the things of his soul and many of the scriptures. His soul delighteth in the scriptures, in the writings, and my heart pondereth them and writeth them from learning. That sounds like a verse out of the Talmud, doesn't it? And writeth them for the learning and profit of my children. <coughs> Well, but then he goes on, nevertheless, and notwithstanding all the great goodness of the Lord to him, in the 17th verse, what does he say there? He says, Oh, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. My heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. Well, what is he up to that's so sinful? You notice he's always under this steady pressure from his brethren, and now it's burst out anew, and it's very bad, you see, after Lehi has died. And he's just about ready to give up here. <coughs> He says, I am encompassed about because of the temptations and sins which so easily beset me. What's he tempted to do? We soon find out here. To play a rough game is what he's tempted to do. And he, he wants to hit back at Laman and Lemuel. And he has a short temper, and he, uh, remember, he really, he really lets fly at times. And uh, the dispatching of, of Laman wasn't his idea, but his, his impulsive grabbing of Zoram, holding his mouth and, and telling him not, nothing to fear and so forth, instead of arguing with him, Properly, he says he was large and strong, and he could handle his arm easy enough, and so he did. Uh, but, uh, <coughs> but then here, when my heart desires to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Uh, what could they have been? As I say, we shall. What are sins? You see, again, you can't classify them. You can't be like the 
like the 16th century probabilists, like Molinus and the famous catalog of sins, and, and exactly some rate each sin according to a number, and as much three or four decimal places, exactly which sin is worse than which sin. So you can't do that, of course, because sin is a state of mind. And so, behold, he hath heard my cry by day, and he hath given me my knowledge and visions by nighttime. I have sent up uh, my voice, I have sent up on high. Angels have come down and ministered to you. And here is a, a very interesting ascension text here, this 25th one here. And upon the wings of the Spirit hath my body been carried up, I carried away on exceeding high mountains, in the plural, and mine eyes have beheld great things, yea, even to great, uh, too great for man. Therefore, I was bidden that I should not write them. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he says they're too great for us. They're out of our, they're out of our league here. What's been happening to him in these eight years in the desert? He really had some experiences. But if I've seen so great things, you say, why is my heart weep and my soul linger? Why am, I, why am I not happy in that case? See, this is man's condition he gives us here beautifully. Why should my heart and soul linger in the valley of sorrow and my flesh waste away and my strength slacken because of mine afflictions? Well, he's had plenty of afflictions. After eight years, he's had more, more than he can stand, and they're about to break loose and go off by themselves. But here, it's because he's reached a, a peak here. He can't, as if he couldn't take it anymore, you see. Mine afflictions. Why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Well, there is where the, where the weakness comes here. Now, he says, why should I give way to temptation that the evil will have place in my heart? Now, here's a very nice thing. This, uh, what we have here, uh, this is who, who you have to blame for your troubles. Say, with, with eight years of tension, this, his passionate nature comes out here. He is brooding. He is self-accusing. He hit back to the brethren. He's impulsive. He's also physical. And he comes out with a confession here. He gives way to the temptations of the evil that have a place in his heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul, his peace of mind and so forth. He just get mad. He get all upset. You can imagine losing sleep and tossing and this sort of thing that happens to all of us. You shouldn't be peeved about these things, but that's the way we are. Why am I angry? Because of my enemy. Why blame him? Why get all upset because of him, my enemy? It's all right to... Uh, go my way and have trouble, but be angry because why get mad at him? He says, awake my soul, no longer drooping. He calls that sin, you see, because it is. He's wasting. Sin is waste, the scriptures tell us, and he, you're wasting time and energy with anger because it's not going to get you anywhere. Uh, righteous anger, but this is a brooding anger against his brothers that have been going on and on and on, you see. Uh, why am I angry because of my enemy? Awake my soul, no longer droop in sin. Rejoice my heart. Give place no more to the enemy of my soul. There's the enemy. Do not anger because of my enemies. Don't slacken my strength because of my afflictions. See, he's ready to let up. He's not going to follow it through. He's, uh, he's been losing his resolve or something. But don't slacken strength because of, of his afflictions. It's, expect your afflictions. Then he keeps telling himself he should rejoice. See the positive side. Rejoice, O my heart, and cry unto the Lord, and say, O Lord, I will praise thee forever. My soul rejoice. And that's fine. O Lord. And then here we come to this marvelous de desert image, this uh, little uh, vignette here. We have the person fleeing through the desert from his enemies, wanting the Lord to block up the way of those who are chasing him, going to the tent, going in and bowing down to the Lord of the tent and asking him to place his robe around him for protection and say, I am your protector now. He's a member of the tribe. And the, and the, and the sheik, is the, the sheikh is, is bound to protect him as a member of the family then. When he says ahlan, that means both family and it means tent at the same time. The tent is yours and marhaban you have place. And so we saw that have place business before. So. Here he goes now. May the gates of hell be shut continually before me, because that my heart is broken and my spirit contrite. O Lord, wilt thou not shut up the gates of righteousness before me, that I may walk now in the path of the low valley, that's the, the way to get through the shortcut, and may be strict in the plain road, stick to the, the tarak, to the plain road. O Lord, wilt thou encircle me round with thy robe, with the robe of thy righteousness. You see, that that's the idol. That's what atonement is. What's, uh, the, the robe, the flap of the, of the tent of the... Uh, uh, of the um, caparet, yes, it, it, it's the, the tent of the caparet. That's what it's called. Uh, when when the Lord opens that and takes you into His tent, takes you into the He He forgives the people. Well, we talked about that before, or did we? I don't know. Maybe in another class. Uh, but this. Uh, and so you encircle me. Wilt thou make a way for mine escape before my enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way? Seems that's a kashal, we meant that before. But that thou wouldst clear thy way before me and hedge up not my way, but the way of my enemy. That's what you want. That's what the Arab prays for and so forth. 
Now, now this is a confession here. You'll see here this, this next verse here, where he says, O Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh. Remember, he was a very powerful guy. He was their best hunter, and the tough, he was the toughest character of them all, I'm sure. He was physically a very mighty man, as he tells us. I will not trust in the arm of flesh. I won't do that anymore, he says. For I know that cursed is he that puts his trust in the arm of flesh. It's sort of a confession, you see. I know that cursed is he that puts his arm in, his trust, uh, in the arm of flesh. Uh, of course, all force begets counterforce and so forth. You're not going to profit by that. Yea, cursed is he that putteth his trust in the man, or maketh flesh his arm. There, sure. Uh, peace through strength sort of nonsense. Uh, then, I will cry unto thee, my God, my rock, and my righteousness, of course, the rock in the desert. This is what David uses. He's quoting Psalms here when he flees from his enemies. Remember, David was in flood a good deal of the time, fleeing for his life with a small company, hiding out in the desert in the rocks, Assad and so forth. The rock of my righteousness, behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting. Amen. So there's a nice picture of, uh, of Nephi there. And then comes the big break in chapter 5 here. There is the, the big break. And I did cry much because of the anger of my, and cry to God much because of the anger. See, that's what he's doing. This is a cry to God, and what's the cause of it? The anger of his brothers. They won't, just won't let up. See, this first verse of chapter 5. They're relentless. They're obsessed. Nephi is the enemy as far as they're concerned. They'll never forgive him for that. But behold, their anger did increase. It only got worse after that. See. When he called upon the Lord, this prayer that just, just went before, it didn't, didn't cure them at all. Their anger only got worse insomuch that they, they finally sought to get rid of, of Nephi. Now, what's he going to do? They murmured against me, and this is what they were, they were down on, of course. He thinks to rule over us, and after all, when you have a small company together for, uh, have to keep together for years and years, you're always going to have short tempers and anger. People in the many films, plays, and so forth built on that particular theme. You see that people just can't abide each other after a while. Our younger brother thinks he'll rule over us, and we have much trial because of him. He's to blame. Wherefore, let's slay him, that we may not be afflicted any more because of his words. They're getting under our skin. We're not going to have any more. For he, we will not have him to be our ruler, for it belongs to us, who are the elder brethren, to rule over this people, naturally. Came to pass, the Lord warned him. It was time to get out now. The Lord warned him uh, that he should depart from them and flee into the wilderness. And here we have another break. Here we have the Rechabites again. They're breaking off. This is the beginning of the division between the Nephites and the Lamanites then. And it he took his family, and he took Zoram, and also his family. So the Zoramites are Nephites henceforth. There are five families here. And Sam, an elder brother, and his family, and Jacob and Joseph, the two brethren, the youngest ones. And also my sisters, he took their family. Well, that's more than five families, isn't it? Because they'd be married to men outside. And all of those who would go with me, well, that's another group, anyone who is willing to go, regardless of family and so forth. And all of those who would go with me, see these little things escape you if you don't notice them, and you would say just, you went with five families. No, there are five families, and his sister's families too, some of them, and anybody else that wanted to join. Any of those who believed in the warnings and revelations of God, they were out there from on a warning anyway, you see, so here they go. And we did take our tents and journey in the wilderness. Well, this is where I came in, you see, <laughs> the old story again. <coughs> and. Uh, the journey in the wilderness of many ways. Well, now mezzo del camino nostro vita. See, we're in the middle of the journey all the time in the dark and in the dark and dreary world, as, as Dante starts us out. And uh, so, we should call the name of the place Nephi. And they journeyed in the wilderness for many days. Now we don't know how many many is. You see, Book of Mormon geography is a waste of time. So I wouldn't touch it with a forty-foot pole. Never had. It's not necessary. You see, but someday we'll get more information out. I suppose everybody's tried their hand on it. I don't know why. Doesn't make any difference. Uh, and they journeyed in the wilderness for many days, and they pitched their tents, and they'd been doing this in Egypt the way you do, set up a permanent camp. They called the place Nephi after themselves. Well, we have a place in Utah called Nephi, if I recall. We do name things. We have a place called Brigham, because who was a settler and so forth. And uh, Andrew called a place called Provo, because Provost, of course, Etienne Provost was a hunter who made his camp here, his base here in the early days that we should call the name of the place Nephi, but this was written before Provo ever was, you see. Remember back in the 1820s here. And all those who were with me did take upon them <coughs> to call themselves the people of Nephi, which is natural enough. <coughs> the Brighamites, the Josephites, the Smithites, and so forth. Ites people always name themselves after the followers. Their followers are in Alexandria or anything else. And the Platonists and Aristotelian, those names are ancient. They went back to their followers, the Platonists 
called themselves Platonists, followers of Plato, and according to the law of Moses. The basic law is still the law of Moses. They're still living by the Old Testament. And this comes out, oh, when we get to Alma, you will see more light cast on the Old Testament practices described in, in Exodus and Leviticus and De Deuteronomy, especially Exodus and Leviticus than, than anywhere else. But they're, they're living by the law of Moses. That's the basic law. <coughs> well, they always specify we know that salvation doesn't come by it. It just points their minds forward. And notice we were taught a number of times earlier that they brought all manner of seed over here. Now we know things like barley and uh, uh, almost all the crops in the world. Uh, it's very hard to find where they originally came from because they were planted by other people who moved in. It's easy to carry seeds with you, and people do all over the place. So did emmer wheat really originate in Palestine, or was it in, in northern Egypt in an earlier time? And which place uh, is barley? Barley is the common Babylonian measure and so forth, but barley you find all over Asia, and you find it in the New World too from the very beginning. So the spreading of these things, well, any seed will grow. The soil is very impartial here. So they plant the seeds, and you have all sorts of crops here, uh, as, as corn went back to the old world. But the seeds, and they did raise flocks. The flocks, that's an interesting thing, too, because the flocks of various kinds. What would it be, vicuñas or llamas or something like that? They're all the sheep family. Uh, upon, and they, they herd them today, of course. Upon plates of brass, oh, they had the plates of brass, and they have the, the national treasures with them. And he took the sword of Laban and used it as a pattern to make more swords. Uh, and uh, lest by any means the people who were now called Lamanites, they were calling them Lamanites. It's Lamanites for the record. Whether they call themselves Lamanites isn't the idea, but they were Lamanites, you see. And they built many buildings and got to work. And one of the first things he did, they built a temple and constructed after the manner of the Temple of Solomon. And this is one of those points for which the Book of Mormon was often criticized. There was only one temple, and that was the temple at Jerusalem. The Jew wouldn't build another temple. We know that's not so. It's 1925. The Elephantina records, of course, from Upper Egypt. The people who left Jerusalem at the time, at the time of Lehi, went up the Nile to Elephantina, to the first, to the first cataract. And there, there was a large settlement of Jewish mercenaries working for the king of Ethiopia at that time. And uh, they asked for permission to build a temple. They wrote letters back to the committee in Jerusalem, asked to the to the grand uh, rabbi back there. Uh, well, of course, this was five, this 525, when the letters come at a later period. And uh, it, was, it was written to the, the, uh, the temple committee, which would have been the, the high priests, the priests, the scribes, and they, uh, we, it, it's to the high priest. We have a number of those letters asking for permission to build the temple. The permission is granted. Is built after the manner of Solomon's temple, of course, but they don't have the materials. It's much cheaper, a smaller building, but they did. And then later on, under the influence of the same dynasty up north, uh, Honi, or Oni, a, a very famous called the circle drawer, he went and built a model of the temple again at Heliopolis, uh, where the Jews could worship in Egypt. Because that's where they all went, you see, when, when Jerusalem fell, most of them. Alexandrian became the biggest Jewish city in the world, uh, just as New York is today. And uh, and so he built this temple, and he said he, it was after the man. Naturally, he used the pattern of Solomon's temple, but not of so many precious things. They couldn't afford that. Solomon's temple was really a show, as you know. They weren't found upon the land, therefore he couldn't be built like unto Solomon's temple, but substitutes. Manner of construction, the manner of construction was like to the Solomon's temple, and the workmanship was like, but the materials weren't. But it was the best workmanship we could do. Where was it? The... Uh, Yes, they're building a temple in Portland, to my great surprise. The person from there who was on the building committee, he said the workers were absolutely ecstatic. They're not members of the church, the workers who are building it. They're ecstatic because they're not only allowed, but they're instructed and ordered to use the costliest and best materials and the finest workmanship they possibly can. Now, any other contractor in building is going to save money and cut corners, you see. Look at the apartments springing up around Provo there. <laughs> there are tenements, fire traps, you name them. But uh, to be, for a builder in this day and age to be told, use the best materials and the best, if it, even if it's the costliest, the best workmanship you can get possibly, well, that's the sort of thing any real craftsman or artisan dreams of, but gets very few chances at today. Because what today, of course, you've got to save money, uh, minimum of expense, uh, that's, it has to be cost effective and all the rest of it, you see. But he says here, they, the workmanship was exceeding fine. They make a point of that on the temple, and of course it should be. But I, Nephi, was desired they should run out of naturally they wanted to make Nephi their chief. He'd been, he'd been running things all along anyway, so why shouldn't he be chief? 
they were desirous to have him king, but that was too much of a title for him. Uh, but I did for them as much as I could, according to my power, he says, and they looked up to him as their king and leader. Now, uh, now this cursing, there's a great deal said about this race business in the Book of Mormon. It's very clear what it is. It's a cultural thing throughout, as it tells us here, just at the, this beginning part. The, wherefore, they were exceedingly fair, white, fair, and delightsome. Now, that doesn't mean they had complexions of milk or anything like that, does it? That they were pale, white, and ghostly. That's not healthy anyway. Nor does it mean that the others were coal black. Black is much too strong a word to use here if you're using it literally. But as I said before, in uh, Arabic, but it, it applies just as much as in, in Shachar and Lavan, as it does in Hebrew and Aramaic, as it does in Arabic, where it's Abyad or Aswad. Anything that's Abyad is good, delightful, pleasant, and everything that's Aswad is. And of course, in the, in the paintings, in whether it's Greek vase paintings or whether it's wall paintings in Egypt, the people that live in the Bait al-Shachar, in the houses of Hare, out in the desert, are always per painted with dark complexions. And the people that live in the vital shower, uh, in the vital khajar, in the houses of stone, are always depicted with light complexions. The women went, never went out. They would paint their faces with white lead, as a matter of fact. Well, it's a cultural thing, of course, if you live that way. You become dark. And also, uh, added to that, you see, if you become, uh, well, the camps of, uh, of natives, Asiatics, or anything that, like that, they become garbage dump. They're, you live by hunting, and you don't want to, you're not cultivating the soil, you're not bound to work too much or anything like that, and by plunder and things like that. So you become slovenly and dark in your manner, you become dirty and different and smelly and all that sort of thing. That's what you mean by loathsome, you see, dirty, smelly, uh, not very well groomed or anything like that. Uh, and this is a cursing, and they became, I see, when you see a person white and exceeding fair and delightsome, I see you're not going to see a, a platinum blonde here necessarily. <laughs> Though you do find them, this is an interesting thing, it's a thing that always bowled me over among the Hopis. Uh, every tenth child is a blonde, uh, not, uh, not an albino at all. They'll have red hair and blue eyes, or, and I thought, well, this is obviously some missionaries or other, or somebody's intermarried, some Scandinavians, that wasn't it at all. These were all native Hopi kids, and every tenth one was a perfectly good blonde. I mean, uh, as blonde as anybody you ever saw. And, uh, and yet, quite normal, nobody was upset by it or anything like that. And uh, exceedingly fair and delightsome. And the other was a skin of blackness. Well, I say aswa, that's a skin of blackness. It means dark. Uh, a good source of that would say would to be, uh, see Jastrow's Aramaic Dictionary. There it gives the black. Uh, uh, um, as Shoha, uh, uh, as uh, as dark, uh, unpleasant, uh, everything, everything sort of down on it, uncomplimentary in that. Well, we don't need to linger on that. Uh, and then, uh, and a cursing was, no, here it is, you see, it, it, it says it's a cultural affair. And if you mix your seed with them, you got the same cursing. Uh, again, you're, you're sharing their culture, and you intermarry with them the same way, you become, you become just like them. In other words, it is not a racial thing because you can get it yourself. Notice their cursing which came upon them, they did become an idle people, full of mischief and subtlety, and seek in the wilderness for beasts of prey. Well, lots of races like that. We have lots of, all you have to do is, uh, is watch, I guess it's Channel 6, and you can be introduced to all sorts of tribes like that. 26, isn't it, on TV? Yeah, almost steadily, this geographic, National Geographic study. You see tribes like that everywhere. Uh, not that they don't have their virtues, and the Lamanites certainly did. Uh, but racial change isn't necessary for this, for this at all, you see, because it's not. After all, they are members of the same family. We know that. And then this is the point, you see. This is why the Lord, as he tells us back in First Nephi, the second chapter already, right at the beginning of the book, there in the 23rd verse, he tells them, he says, uh, I want them breathing down your neck. I'm going to keep the Lamanites there to, to keep you in line. They may stir you up to remembrance. You're never going to solve the Lamanite problem by trying to beat them by any arms or weapons or anything you can do. That's not the way you solve things. I want those people giving you trouble. They shall be a scourge to stir thy unto thy steed to stir them up in remembrance of me. Inasmuch as they will not remember me and hearken unto my words, they shall scourge them even to destruction. Here's a promise. If your people do not obey me, the Lamanites are there to destroy you. They'll scourge you until you're destroyed. That makes it very clear. Well, and Nephi consecrated Jacob to be a priest and teacher. So Nephi was not to be, uh, Jacob was not to be his successor in the government. They start, uh, they start appointing chiefs by the name of Nephi as they give them that title, just as Caesar. Caesar's successor was called Caesar and ever after. The person who held the title was called the Caesar. <coughs> so it was, <coughs> excuse me, 
though it was a personal name originally. <coughs> and, uh, and, <coughs> and here's an interesting thing. <coughs> we, lived, <coughs> we lived after the manner of happiness. <coughs> Don't ever grind your own wheat, people. Uh, it always gets stuck in your throat. Uh, and it came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness. Now, what on earth is the manner of happiness? It's very interesting. Uh, there is a regime that assures happiness. And of course, it's a state of mind. That's all there is. Uh, and it's a state of mind that goes with every way of life, whether you're living in the desert, whether you're living in the clouds, or where, wherever you're living, whether it's in the city or in the country, there is a manner of happiness. Um, and if you are not happy, that means you're not living the right way. You're supposed to be happy. They're living after the manner of happiness. But you say, egads, what they, just these few families, these few people, living out in the sticks all by themselves, weren't they bored stiff? Now, this is an interesting phenomenon. Where you find boredom is not in such places, but in the midst of the greatest civilizations. That's where people get bored, because they get replete and so forth. Now, look at the literature. Look at the novels of the French, a whole lot of them, Proust, for example, or... <coughs> of the English, all sorts. It's the English murder mystery. The people living in the country house, absolutely bored beyond. Well, uh, in, L in London, the same thing. Everybody's absolutely bored. Stiff nobility, you see. <laughs> but especially the Russian novels. Lermontov, uh, 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 Tolstoy has a novel called Tordi Ludi. Uh, difficult people. This, this, the classic situation, you see, is the rich, is the rich buying the rich Russian family. This is before the revolution. <laughs> They had everything their way, and they would just live around and got bored until they started committing suicide and having duels and murders and everything else. And this happens in the, in the other ones. The French would always say, il n'y a rien à faire, there's nothing to do. And uh, <laughs> the Russian slogan, <laughs> slogan was stojelat, skutsnoi grusno, boring, disgusting their life is. And they're the people that have everything. There's the rich landowners and so forth. And uh, the same thing with the Polish novels, though, and I haven't read any of them for a long time. I used to read myself asleep, to sleep with Russian novels, and, and they were good ones to put you to sleep because these people were so bored with their lives. Sometimes they'd uh, impulsively, in one story called The Duel by Lermontov, uh, two, two house guests get so bored and disgusted, they decide to just have a duel and kill each other because there's nothing else to do. Well, the, no, boredom goes with civilization as much as anything. You won't say these people are out, because these people are out there by themselves, they're, they're going to be bored uh, insufferably, uh, beyond endurance. Life in a monastery can't be, but there again you have the idea of a few people shut up together. Uh, there's no more, there's no more enlightening and uh, terrifying document than, than Browning's uh, soliloquy in a Spanish cloister. Yeah. The last word, girl, you swine. One of the brethren is jealous. Well, they're jealous of each other, hate each other's guts and so forth, because they're shut in, they're locked in together, doing this pious routine all the time, year after year after year. That would really be boredom. But what do you do not to be bored? What do you do to live after the manner of happiness? Whoopee, you see. Well, now, as Brother Packer told us, also from the Book of Mormon, uh, wickedness never was happiness. You're not going to get it by kicking the gong around and, and indulging in this, that, and the other. That's a very interesting thing. Again, you see, uh, my youngest son uh, was, uh, of all places, he never graduated from high school. Uh, he, he was voted most likely to succeed, and he's a big wheel now, incidentally, but that's something, that's something else. But. Uh, for a while, he, he danced with the San Francisco Ballet, of all things, you see. He, he tried everything. And uh, the boys in Haight-Ashbury used to say, well, why don't you try the drugs? Why don't you try the sex? This, that, and the other. wouldn't do any of that. He had a simple answer to any of them. He'd just look him in the eye and say, are you happy? And usually they'd break out crying. They're utterly miserable, you see. This is the point, going to these excesses. You're not going to find fun that way. You quickly exhaust all the all the variety you can think of, and it becomes exceedingly depressing, as we know. Well, so uh, the way of happiness, we have a perfect right, see? Man is that he might have joy, and our whole idea here is a country where we can have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but it doesn't tell you how to pursue it. See, constant, and you're not supposed to tell me, I'm not supposed to tell you. But there are ways of pursuing happiness until your joy becomes uncontrollable, just absolutely wild, and it's, it's the love of the Lord. It's, it's when the Lord blesses. You know that, you feel that, that you don't know what happiness is until that happens, and it will. Notice, here it is. There's the key right here in the 32nd verse here. It says, and if my people are pleased with the things of God, 
They'll be pleased. So they're pleased with the things of God. That's enough to keep you happy all the time. It's a very interesting thing because we have lots of pioneer journals and things like that and, and things that went on. And there was amazingly little in some of these things. My mother was born in Manta and so forth, and we have various uh, family journals and the like. There was amazingly little feuding and trouble. There is now, if you read, uh, if you read Miss Marple and so forth, uh, what happens in a little English village where everything seems to be so peaceful and, and kind. There's where the murders and the dirty plots and everything take place. But there's uh, a little in the English village is an, an establishment of many, many years. They're, they're very ancient and established, and people have been living there. And they're living rather shallow lives. See, the gospel means nothing to them. Uh, their lives are formality, very formal. Uh, tea, for example, the tea is the one thing around which everything settles, the nice cup of tea. And this is a formality. If we didn't have these formalities, we'd, we'd go crazy and fall apart. We have to do these little things like, that's why uh, I was in a, uh, Max Taylor, who was the commander of the 101st Airborne, he insisted that everybody in the division, no matter what the operation was, no matter what the circumstances were, shave every day. You had to. That was You'd be court-martialed if you didn't shave. Now, why should you shave every day of all things, especially if you were stuck in one muddy hot foxhole uh, for 77 days, as I was once? It's a long time uh, holding the side of Arnhem there. But uh, it, was, it was a morale thing. It kept you going. It was the only thing that kept your sanity. You had to do these little things. You had to shave, and you had to brush your teeth, and all this sort of thing. And if you did that, that was fine. Then you duck back awfully quick. But uh, this, man, this uh, living after the manner of happiness is a remarkable statement, I do believe. And we pay, should pay more, more attention to things like that. And now, we get on to the sixth chapter, the words of Jacob. Now, Jacob gets a word in here. He's, we're going to have a book of Jacob. But he was consecrated to be a priest. So uh, by Nephi, whom we look upon as king and protector, he wouldn't be appointed. He refused the office. But they look upon him as king and a protector. And uh, he says, my anxiety is great. He's worried, you see. He's just as worried. You remember, he's their spiritual leader now. And he's as worried as Nephi was. And he's going to say, I'm going to give you a view of things to come. And he quotes Isaiah, as Nephi had been quoting Isaiah more than anything else, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls or Isaiah far before everything else. The Lord God should manifest himself in the flesh. Now, he has the, the future of the Jews here. Now, this is a thing that's gone through in the Book of Mormon a number of times. I'm going to skip over these chapters in Isaiah here. Yes, just pointing out some things. Blessed are the Gentiles, if they repent, fight not against Zion, nor unite themselves to that great and abominable church which they shall be saved. Well, that's a strange uh, condition. All you have to do is not belong to a particular church. That should be very easy. That includes atheists and everything else. For the people of the Lord are they who wait for him, for they still wait for the coming of the Messiah, and very few did. The Messiah will come a second time then to glory unto the destruction of their enemies. He's giving them a preview of the comings of the Lord as in the Hebrew prophets. And then, he'd be, and then he says, believe not him shall be destroyed both by fire and by tempest and so forth. For the mighty God shall deliver his covenant people, for thus saith the Lord, I will contend with them that contendeth with thee. And I will feed them uh, on their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood. Well, he's quoting Isaiah here, and chapter 7 is just chapter uh, 50 from Isaiah. And incidentally, you compare these chapters with those in the King James. They're not identical. They're various different. I have a couple of pages. I've got, well, a section in that book called since Camorra, in which I compare various passages, and there are key differences, some rather important. And the, the Book of Mormon follows the Septuagint rather than the, than the Hebrew, than the uh, Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is a thousand years later than the Septuagint, you see. Septuagint is a thousand years earlier. It's, it's Greek. It isn't the Hebrew. It's Greek. But it was translated by Hebrew scholars, by uh, 72, as the name shows, by, by 72 scholars from Jerusalem for the benefit of Ptolemy I of of, of Egypt at Alexandria, they translated it, and uh, they, a thousand years earlier than I knew what the Old Testament should sound like. And, and now, you see, we have another text of Isaiah, the Isaiah text from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a thousand years earlier than any Hebrew text of Isaiah. Now we can compare them, see what they're like. You see. And again, the Isaiah is closer to the Septuagint, the Joseph Smith is closer to the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls is. So the King James Version is the one that that strayed farthest. Well, it's latest, actually. It's not drastic, not, but there's some important points in it. Well, that's just in passing. And look unto Abraham and Sarah. Well, let's get to chapter 9 when he starts explaining it then. Now we're meaning racing along here. Uh, that you know concerning the covenants. 
He's spoken to the Jews from the beginning down until now, until the time they shall be destroyed. And then later they shall be gathered home to the lands, plural, of their inheritance, and shall be established in all their lands of promise. So it's a wider movement than just the city of Jerusalem. And that ye may rejoice and lift up your heads forever. Our flesh must waste away and die. Now he comes to the study of the atonement and the resurrection here. This is important. The important thing is not what happens to Jerusalem or what happens to the nation or the church for that matter. It's what happens to you. I mean, if the whole thing is just going to pass away and, and go down into the dust and be forgotten forever. And this is the one where he talks about the second law of thermodynamics right here, you see. Here he says, uh, our flesh must waste away and die. Well, it does do that, as we notice. Nevertheless, in our bodies we shall see God. And remember Job, though the worms of the earth destroy my body, yet in the flesh shall I see God. Luther translated that because he didn't like it. Yet only does flesh shall I see Without the flesh I shall see God. All I did was put another word in there, not in the flesh, change it to without. Well, you can do that if you want, but that's not what the, what the text said. I know in the body he shall show himself to those at Jerusalem. He uh, promises the coming of Christ. For as death has passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of... Now this word plan is going to be used a lot. I just... You can look up in Young's Concordance or anywhere else. The word plan does not occur once in the Bible. It's been used a great deal by preachers today. It was never used in Joseph Smith's day. But you see how it explains things. We can put up with an awful lot if we know it's according to plan. We can wait it out in that case. But the word plan is never found in the Bible. Uh, the rabbis didn't like it, among other things. No, the idea of the plan, which becomes very important here, that this is the way things are supposed to be. But this requires a pre-existence. And this requires a lot of other things that atonement does. You see, we talk about atonement, uh, you can, you, yeshuva, and yeshiva, either yeshiva is the return to the place where you were before, return to God. Well, if you weren't there before, you see, that's one word for atonement they use in the Old Testament. The other, yeshiva, means going in and sitting down on the sh sitting down beside him. It means going in and sitting down with your father in heaven when you when you're taken into the presence of uh, of the Most High. And so yeshiva, all those words have to do with going back home and being received again. And that's what he's talking about here. This gives us great insight into the atonement doctrine, especially later on when we get it to Alma. But here he says here, death has passed upon all men. That's true, but that's part of the plan, the plan of the great creator. There must needs be a power of the resurrection. Now, there's only one thing you can do if everything is going that way. If that's the natural course of things, what can you do about it? There has to be a power. Somebody has to intervene. There has to be somebody to intervene. Well, is that conceivable? It's any, of course it's conceivable, the fact that we're here. Somebody intervened to get us here. We shouldn't be here. If we had just a mass of inert matter out there acting on itself this way and that way, accident and so forth, well, it looks like Matthew's work on the Newtonian apple and so forth. Uh, there's some great studies done on that. The statistical probability of our not existing, of course, is, is a trillion to zero. I mean, you're not supposed to be here. There's no chance of our being here by chance. And Wald, the great uh, biologist, used to say, we can't, there's only one argument why we should be here. Everything is against it. It's absurd. We're not here. And that's the fact. We are here, you see. That shows that somebody's spoiling the game. They're not playing the right scientific game. Well, this is the whole point here. There's, there must be a power to intervene. Because he says it is perfectly natural for things to die and stay dead, as far as that goes. He says here, the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall, uh, because we fell, you see, and spoil everything. And the fall came by reason of transgression. And because man became fallen, they were cut off. Now, see, that's the offer, opposite of atonement, at one, to be at one, to be cut off, to be separated is not to be at one anymore. And this is the, this is the opposite, and this is, a, and this is the penalty. And therefore, however, how are you gonna, what are you going to do about this being cut off? There must be an infinite atonement here, uh, bringing together in one. See, atonement is not just one in the presence of the Father, but the atonement of all things, the atonement of the flesh, bringing together th things that were formerly separated. That's what, that's what at one is. See, at, at one covers an awful lot of ground. I listed yesterday 40 different words in the Bible that they're equivalent of atonement and sometimes are translated as atonement. See? 40 different expressions all mean atonement in different ways. But it all comes back to being at one. Good old atonement is the best word you can use. And so it says here, an infinite atonement, that is an unlimited capacity to recompose things that are broken down, to bring them back together as they were in their original state, you see. Uh, restoring and integrating. Well, this is the, what you get in oxidation reduction, you see. I think oxidized, everything here, everything in the room is not only being dragged down by 
not only being dragged down by gravity, but we're being oxidized. Everything is, is slowly being burned up. And you can reverse that process by, uh, by reduction, you see, by, by adding your, o, your OH radical and take care of that. But uh, not all the way. But see, he's talking about a process, an infinite capacity, an infinite atonement, an infinite capacity to put things together again. <laughs> because it's going to have to be forever. An infinite atonement, he says, without that, then this corruption could not put on incorruption. Because once things are rotted and crumbled and is corrupt, how is it possibly going to put on incorruption unless there is an unlimited power to do that very thing, to select it? Well, I see it comes nearly up so. And so, then this is the, uh, uh, this one really hits the gong. And if so, this flesh must have laid down, oh, wait a minute, wherefore the first judgment that came upon man must remain an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and crumble in the mother dust to rise no more. Remember, you cannot reverse the process of entropy. It's the heat death. Things all wear down to a dead level and you can't go anywhere after that because there's no place to go. And that's the way it would be, he says, if that wasn't for a spec. Somebody had intervened and changed things. And then no wonder he breaks out. He says, how marvelous it is to know that there's something that that isn't it. That's not, not going to settle things. Oh, the wisdom of God, his mercy and grace. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to him. Why? Because they have yielded. It was, it's the spirits that yield on sins. It's the spirit that... Uh, went the way of the flesh, and the spirit is guilty. The flesh has gone out of, yeah, the flesh is finished. It's done, it's passed away forever, but there's a guilty spirit. It's got, it's got itself into this jam now. What's it going to do? Our spirits must be subject to the person who tempted it. It was the spirit that was tempted by, by Satan here, and they become devil and angels to the devil because they, oh, incidentally, this ninth verse, I see the time is up now. Well, it isn't up, so we'll have to break it up. Better note it here, because this ninth verse is um, another one of those remarkable a concise summaries. It's shocking, uh, but it's a good one. So we'll continue the next time.